We are thankful that you are good to us, and we're thankful for your goodness and grace in our lives. We're thankful that we can come before the throne because of the accomplished work of Christ. We're mindful of the war in Ukraine. God, we pray your intervention there. We ask that you would bring peace. You are the God who says that you will break every bow and shatter every spear. May you do so even this day and grant peace. As we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you'd be with us. We can't understand it without you. So, Spirit of God, may you open our eyes to the truth of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. I've said this earlier in Acts, but likely one of, if not the greatest struggle most believers have, is with witness. It was, it's actually with taking the faith that God's given you, the hope that you have in Christ, and sharing it with someone else. It's taking the hope you have, this witness that God has granted you, and being able to articulate it to someone else, being able to talk to someone else about it. I mean, if, if you think of your own life, when was the last time you clearly shared the gospel with someone? Not talk about church or programs, not talk about, about things that you know, we do here, come to the hub or coffee's on, but you actually shared the gospel. You actually shared the good news of Christ with someone. Was it last week? Was it a month ago? Was it last year? For some of us, it's been years since we've actually shared the gospel with someone. And sometimes we chalk it up to personality. We say, well, some people are more wired for evangelism. They're more gifted in it. It is true that there is a gift of evangelism. But some people, they would say, you know, if you're more extroverted, you're more wired that way. And if you're more introverted, you're not. That's simply not true. Some people would say it's based on knowledge, yet they've been in the church for a long time. They've come, they've heard sermon after sermon or message after message, and yet they would still say, like, you know, whoa, like, I don't know enough. They might ask me a question I don't have the answer to. And it's got nothing to do with that. Yes, you do need to be able to articulate the gospel clearly. No question. But you don't need to be able to explain the fine-tuning arguments of the universe. You don't need to be able to explain finer points of the Trinity to explain the gospel. So what I'd like to suggest it boils down to is this simple thing. Are you following the Spirit? That's it. That's it. If you're a believer today, the Spirit of God is in you. Are you listening to him? Are you walking with him? Does he fill you? You see, as he goes through the book of Acts, people are empowered and emboldened to speak the gospel, to share their faith, and every time, invariably, it's about dependence and reliance on the Spirit of God. It's about God's Spirit walking with someone. And so we often put this up to knowledge or we put this up to personality, but it's actually about your walk with God. It's actually about how close you are with Jesus. It's actually about your dependence on the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, God called Philip to Samaria. The Spirit of God led him there. People came to faith in Christ, and now God's Spirit is going to redirect him. Now this is Philip the deacon, not Philip the apostle. How do we know that? 
doesn't say that in the text anywhere. But it does say at one point in the text in chapter 8, after Philip's been witnessing in Samaria, that the apostles came to verify the witness. If Philip was an apostle, the apostles wouldn't have had to come. Does that make sense? So that's why this is Philip the deacon, not Philip the apostle. Though the text never states that specifically. So verse 26 of Acts 8, I'm going to stutter step through the text. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, um, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And verse 27, the beginning of it, so he started out. This road is along the Mediterranean Sea. So he has to first go down from Samaria to Jerusalem, then from Jerusalem across over to this strip heading down. And Philip didn't say, he didn't make excuses, he didn't say to the angel, note it's an angel first here that speaks to him. That might be unnerving for some of us if that happened this afternoon. An angel just appeared and spoke to you. How would you respond to that? Would you know it was an angel? I'm going to do a five-week series on spiritual warfare. I'll talk about angelology, demonology, demonization uh, this fall. Uh, and so I'm going to do that this fall to talk through that. But an angel appears and tells him that. Peter, uh, Philip, sorry, follows. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, I'll go, not now. Man, I'm finishing some work around the house. I got a few things I got to get done. I, they're busy. You know, Philip was a busy guy. You know that, right? He had a whole life. And as a deacon, as someone who was called to just serve in the church, he just saw his life as service to the kingdom. All right, that's what you want me to do. I got it. Today, if God asked you to do that, if God just said to you today, go to Kingston, would you book tomorrow off to go? He doesn't tell him why. Doesn't explain anything to him. I mean, are you walking closely enough with the Spirit that you could hear him call you to Kingston today if he did? Now, I'm not asking all of you to drive to Kingston. It would be amazing to have all these calls saying, I'm in Kingston, now what? I'm not asking you just to drive to Kingston today. I'm not the voice of God in your head. Prayerfully, prayerfully, that's true. He didn't say, I'll go, but not now. He didn't say, I'm, I'm already doing your work. God, see what I'm doing here in Samaria? God, see what I'm doing at the Hub or Coffee's On or Youth Ministry at James North? God, see what I'm doing in my neighborhood? Or God, see what I'm doing at, at the workplace I'm in? I've had these gospel-centered conversations. I mean, there's a revival-like moment going on in Samaria. Philip doesn't say, what? Doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't say anywhere but there. Guess a strip, God, whew. Like, I didn't want to go to Samaria. Now you're sending me there? Philip just doesn't make any excuses. What excuses do you make when God calls you? What do you say to him? Well, what would have been likely true to Philip in that moment, it was like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like, God's doing a great work here, and he wants me to go there. God, I'm going. It may not have made sense to him, humanly speaking, but he trusted God followed the Spirit, and went. On his way, this is verse 27, still he meets an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Candake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man has gone to Jerusalem to worship. He's on his way home, was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Here I want you to note this. This is really important. In chapter 8, Philip is about, or Luke is about to contrast three groups. The Samaritans, Probably common, average, everyday people, right? Middle class. 
confused in their religion, following God as they understand him. He's going to compare that with the Jews. That's Philip, right? Again, probably middle-class guy. Before coming to Christ, devout power of Jehovah God, following the ways of the Jewish people, and Jehovah that way, now saved. And he's going to contrast that with the Ethiopian. This eunuch, wealthy, able to make this trip. So when the cartoon kind of showed you one person in a chariot with one, there's probably more of an entourage. I mean, this is a long journey. If you look on a map, this is what we would consider today uh, modern-day Sudan, right? Because Ethiopia, the borders have changed over 2,000 years with wars. The Ethiopian borders have moved further uh, south, uh, west, basically, uh, southeast, sorry, uh, southeast along the border. And so if you look at a map of Ethiopia 2,000 years ago, it would be more where modern-day Sudan is. And if you look at it now, it would be further down. But it's still quite a journey, quite a journey back then when you're on a chariot. So this man had the money, he had the time, he had the power to be able to go. I mean, he's not a slave in the Ethiopian court. He's an official. This man is important. He's... Basically, like, like for us, the person in charge of the Bank of Canada. This is this Ethiopia. And, uh, and, and he's gone to worship in Jerusalem. Why? I don't know. The text doesn't say. Maybe he heard about the ten plagues and the freeing of the Egyptians, of the Israelites, sorry, from the tyranny of Egypt. Maybe those stories were still being recounted now thousands of years later in, in Egypt and in Ethiopia he, he heard them. We don't, we don't know. I, we don't know why he went. He's not searching for Jesus in this moment. He's wanting to be a follower of Yahweh, Jehovah God, and the Jewish tradition. He's likely what we'd consider a God-fearer in that sense. And he's gone to Jerusalem to figure all of this out. This long, long spiritual journey. Do you know there's people all around us on journeys like that? Some of them are our neighbors. Some of them are our friends. Some of them are colleagues at work. Other students at school. Do you know some of them are people that come to our junior high ministry or our high school ministry? They show up at the hub or coffee's on. And they're not just here for food. They're also here because there's a message that's given. And something about that message resonates with their soul. And they're on this journey. And they're trying to figure out who God is. Who he is. Well, the Spirit tells Philip, go to that chariot, stay near it. So Philip runs up to the chariot. Here's the man reading for the prophet. Uh, do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. Now this isn't, the cartoon doesn't do this justice, okay? The chariot is moving. There's a horse, there's a chariot. It's probably a trot because it's not gonna like be galloping all the way back to Ethiopia. But Philip's like kind of jogging up to it. Hey man, he hears the Isaiah scroll. You understand what you're reading? Kind of out of breath. The chariot likely stops at that point. That's the idea of the text here. The Spirit of God says, run up to that chariot. Philip's like, okay. He runs up. He hears the reading of the prophet Isaiah and, and he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? The man likely bought one of the scrolls there at the temple. How can I, he said, 
unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Do you know, likely this man was devastated. Do you know if you were a eunuch, you weren't allowed in the temple. You couldn't go in. Deuteronomy 23 Verse 1 says this, No one who's, who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. So likely not knowing that, not having a copy of Scripture, this man had made this spiritual journey all the way to Jerusalem to try to understand who this God was who he'd heard recounted over and over and over again. He wants to know who God is. He knows he's got this hole in his heart. He makes it all the way to Jerusalem and he's told, Sorry, not for you. Sorry, you can't come in. I mean, if they are following the temple rules in that day, let's say they were, there's no reason to assume they weren't. He'd have been told he couldn't come in. He wouldn't fit. He didn't belong. He's not satisfied with the answer. He purchases a scroll and he's reading it on the way home. This is partly why I believe this. Derek said this at staff meeting, which was a great insight. How can I unless someone explains it to me, which the idea was no one explained it to me at the temple. I wasn't able to hear the explanation there. And now I'm going home and I have no explanation. But I'm searching, I'm looking. They're all around us, you know that, right? You know, a study was done. Dave Heska sent me a study done this last week of the, the number of people, I don't know the stats are probably right now, but the number of people coming out of COVID that are spiritually seeking out of this massive study done. It's an American study out of the States. Massive study of the numbers of people, spiritually speaking, all around us every day. Well, this man who's crushed asked Philip to come and explain it to him. You know, sometimes we do this, right? Somebody comes to the hub or coffee's on and we offer them food and clothes, but they're, they're looking for something greater. We've never asked them. Somebody comes to youth week after week after week and we give them activities to play and stuff to do, but we've never sat down to ask them what they're really looking for. A neighbor comes to us and lets us know that their mom's dying with cancer or a friend is struggling and we don't ever ask if there's something deeper going on, if there's something more going on. Are they telling us for a reason? I mean, one of the things you know we've wanted to do, we put an emphasis, the elders, on evangelism. At our church, we long to be more evangelistic and it come out of the natural ebb and flow of our lives. At our last elders meeting, we invited Richard Fleming to come meet with us. Richard led Feb International, the arm of the fellowship that leads missions for years. Richard came and sat with us to talk about some of the stuff that God is doing around the world today and some of the stuff they've learned. And they have this opportunity that I actually have really appreciated. We're going to look at a couple other models but, but that I think we could get trained in and it's not overly hard. It's, it's, it's going to places where God is allowing you to meet people who don't know him at work, at home. They do a lot of door knocking. I'm not, I'm not certain door knocking is the best way. God, God brings us hundreds of people every week here that we'd have to systematize it in some ways because this is what happens. You, you kind of go, let's say someone comes into the hub and you go and sit with them one week and say, is there anything I can pray for you today? This is what you can do at someone's door. You know, we're so-and-so. You know, this is, you don't say what church you're from. You're just two Christians. You knock on someone's door and just say, we're here today just wondering. We're going to the neighborhood just praying for people. Just asking God's blessing on them. Is there anything we can pray for you today? If they say no, you say, God bless you and walk away. Don't wipe the dust off the sandals of your feet. 
And um, God didn't tell you to do that in that moment. If you think he did, talk to me. And, uh, and then you go to the next door. And if the next door they say, yeah, actually, I'd like you to pray for that, for this, you pray for them. If at the end of the prayer you, you look at them and say, would you like to know anything about this God we've just prayed to? And if they say no, you just move on. But if they say, you know what? I'd love to know a bit more about the God you've just prayed to. You, you offer just a bit of a gospel explanation. And you're not in that moment trying to seal some kind of deal. You're not trying to lead them to faith in Christ. I mean, unless God's spirit really moves in that moment, like with the eunuch, then you say to them, would you like to learn more about this God I've just talked to you a bit about? And if they say yes, you ask for their number. You take their number down in your cell. Two days later, you text them and invite them to a Bible study with three of you from James North. Maybe two people that you just met in them. That doesn't sound overly hard, does it? Now, I know some of you are shaking because it sounds terrifying. But what if we did this at the hub, at youth ministry? What if we just went to every youth and, and over the course of every four months, we made sure that every youth was asked what we could pray for them for, whether they're from Christian homes or from the Koran homes or from homes from the community. What if we did that with everyone at the hub? Now, I, I want you to be careful because I, I, I know what this could turn into. Some of the hub could have someone come and say, hey, anything I pray for you today? They pray with them. Would you like to know the God I just prayed to? You explain it to them. Would you like to know more? Yeah, I'll invite you to Bible study. 20 minutes later, next person from the hub sits down with them. Hey, anything I can pray for you for today? I mean, I don't, I don't want to, you know, inundate people. But God's bringing them here for a reason. Isn't that good news? He brings them right into our building. And I'm thankful we can hand them food and clothes. And I'm thankful that there's a gospel presentation every time they come in. But oh, that it would be one person to another. Oh, that it would be us courageously being led by God's Spirit and hearing his still small voice and walking into the youth ministry or the hub or, and because we prayed all week and showing up and just saying, God, who should I sit with today? God, who today? God, who at work today? Do you pray for your colleagues at work like that? God, who at work today? Do you pray for your neighbors like that? I know some of you do. God, who today? Who today? Who today? And sometimes, though they've come here for food and clothes, like the Ethiopian eunuch, they've left because they weren't really searching for food and clothes. They were searching for God. So he's reading the scroll of Isaiah and this is the passage he's reading. Now, I'm going to admit as I read this passage, like, God, give me open doors like this. Uh, this is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. This is verse 32. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. This is Isaiah 56 of the suffering servant. This is Jesus. We are his descendants, the spiritual descendants we're talking about here. And, uh, and, and, and the eunuch says to Philip, tell me, is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Like, Lord, give me people like this. Right? Lord, this is what I'm kind of looking for. But this does happen. I mean, one of the things we should be praying continually is Colossians 4, 2 and 3, right? Where the Bible says, Scripture says, devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. And then Paul says what? Pray for us too that God would open a door for our message because you can't go through closed doors. 
Pray that God would open a door for our message. Then what? Pray that I can proclaim that message clearly as I should. I remember I preached that passage. Some of you have heard me tell the story. I was in Sault Ste. Marie, and I preached that passage. And I was getting on the plane to come home. I, I preached five times in Sault Ste. Marie that weekend. And it was Monday, and I was getting on the plane to come home. And I was like, Lord, I've just preached on evangelism the whole weekend. God, would you open a door for me? Would you open a door for me? We're getting on the plane. Would you open a door? Not something I pray often getting on planes. Sometimes I just want to sit and work. Occasionally, I just want to sleep. I can sleep on planes like you wouldn't believe. And, uh, but I try to always work for a chunk of time, set an alarm, work some more. But Lord, would you open the door? Would you open the door? So I sit down, and uh, this guy sits down beside me. I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly what happens. He says, hey, I'm Jim. I said, hey, I'm Dwayne. He said, Dwayne, do you believe in miracles? I'm like, what? Lord, that can't be an open door. There's no way that's an open door. Right? And he says, I, uh, I fell several stories. I think it was 12 stories um, off of a building broke my back. Doctors say I would never walk again. I, I'm from Sault Ste. Marie, but I've been in Hamilton for these surgeries, and uh, they've put my back back together. I, I can walk with, it's a, with a great deal of pain, and now they think they can get rid of a pain, the pain. And he said, I'd say that's a miracle. Everybody says it's a miracle. The doctors say it was a miracle. He said, would you call that a miracle? I'm like, yeah, that's a miracle. And he says, uh, who would you thank if something like that happened to you? Like, I thought to myself, I don't know who to thank for this miracle. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, God. Is this really what's happening right now? And so, like, I, I'm like, hey, Jim, yeah? Like, do you go to church or anything? No. Like, you're not a Christian, no? Like, this isn't some game. You haven't heard me speak in Sault Ste. Marie or, no, you spoke in Sault Ste. Marie. Like, about what? I'm like, about God. About God. Is that who you think? I'm like, Lord, this can't be easier right now than this. And so sometimes God will do that. Now, the story doesn't end with him coming to faith in Christ. I didn't find water in the, in the bathroom or flood it of the plane and baptize him. Could you imagine? No, you shouldn't do that in the plane to... I'm sure we don't have like marshals on planes, but whatever we have like that, they would show up. Um, I always think of the American version of things. Um, ours probably don't even have a gun. They just have some type of flashlight, but that's fine. It's okay. They'll take care of you. That's not a comment on our system. It's just a comment. So Philip began with the very passive scripture. Philip just started with the passage that he was in, and he told them the good news about Jesus. Just explains to him the good news about Jesus. He explains the uniqueness of Jesus. He, and somewhere in here, because the man's baptized at the moment, he talks about repentance. He talks about turning from sin. He talks about turning to Christ. He talks about the only hope being in Christ. And what this man was turned away from in Jerusalem, he finds in his chariot on the road to Gaza. Is that not good news? What this man felt was just for a certain group of people in a certain place, he realizes it's for him. What this man thought he was excluded from, all of a sudden he realized he's included into. And all he has to do is believe. I mean, it's one of the great things about our faith and every other faith. In order to adhere to that faith, there's all kinds of hoops you have to jump through. There's all kinds of things you have to do. There's all kinds of stuff that goes on. In any other faith, there's all of this, this, this junk that comes with it. What do you have to do to be a Christian? You turn from your sin. You trust in Christ. You believe the good news of the gospel. That's it. Who can do it? Anyone. When can they do it? Anytime. It is the good news of the gospel that God can save anyone, anywhere, any place, anytime as he chooses. Is that not good news? That is the power of the gospel. 
And this man who felt excluded, this man who felt on the outside, this man who was certain it wasn't for him but was searching, found that the gospel was for him in Christ. And he's excited. I mean, the man is bubbling with excitement. How do we know that? As they traveled along, they came to some water. The eunuch says, look, here's water. The eunuch says it, not Philip. Philip doesn't say, yo, man, there's water. Is it part of the Mediterranean Sea? Is there going by? I don't know. It doesn't say. They say water. What can stand in my way of being baptized? Philip, shouldn't I get dunked? Well, he gave the order to stop the chariot. Both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. So they had quite a conversation, didn't they? I mean, the conversation included all the way through the baptism, right? I mean, the eunuch wouldn't have known anything about baptism unless it was part of the conversation. So this is a fairly comprehensive conversation that they had. But this eunuch realized somewhere in this conversation that Jesus had actually died for him. And one of the things I've tried to do over the last decade or so, a bit longer than that, I'll be 15 years, is I've tried to look for phrases that help to take the gospel and, and, and place them in, in a short sentence or a pithy saying. Some of them I found I've appreciated from John Piper. Some of them I found I've appreciated from Tim Keller. Some of them I found I've appreciated from Don Carson. Some of them I've written myself as I've just studied scripture. This is likely my favorite Keller quote of all time. The cross was the only way for God to end evil without ending us. Is that not a great quote? The cross was the only way for God to end evil without ending us. Because God wanted us. Is that not good news? For God so loved the world. God wanted us that he sent his son, that Christ cloaked his deity with humanity, that he came down and lived among us. God so loved the world that he gave his one one and only son. What would he do? He'd give his life up for us. He'd die on the cross for us. He'd face the wrath of the Father for us so that anyone, anywhere, anytime who believes in him doesn't need to perish but can have eternal life. Who's that for today? It's for the Ethiopian eunuch. It's for the children downstairs in Kingdom Kids. It's for the people that come into the hub and coffees on and youth ministry and children's ministry. It's for your neighbor across the street from you. It's for your family member. It's for everyone. For God so loved the world. Well, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Atosus, or Azotus, and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. We won't see Philip again for 20 years. Later on in the book of Acts, he'll have four daughters by then who are all prophetesses. Right? You'll see that later on in the book of Acts in, into the 20th-ish chapter. I think it's 21. Um, and so we're talking 20 years later between now and that time that we'll see Philip again four kids later. So Philip settled down in Caesarea. We find him there on this journey. He ends up staying there. So God's Spirit took him to Samaria and then the Gaza Strip and then Caesarea. And we don't know how this happened. Like, was he just picked up and kind of, whoop, spun there? Or is it the idea of the Spirit leading him? The text can be read either way. Tradition has it that he was just kind of picked up and poof, there. Like, he had a Star Trek moment. He had like a little a Holy Spirit transponder, right? Poof, transporter, sorry. In one place, boop, beam me up, Holy Spirit, boop, beam me there, right? Don't try that at home. 
but it's what God did to Philip in that thing. And then I want you to know this. Philip lived for 20 years in Caesarea. The text doesn't talk about him again until that time. Four kids later. Was he still listening to the Spirit? He was. Was the Spirit taking him all over the world? No indication of that. Seems to have settled down. Gotten married. Had kids. Who were all walking with the Lord. So he's still walking with the Lord. And so the Lord used him for this season. And then for this next season, used him there. Still as an evangelist. But in a different way. Let me say a couple of things and I'll close. First is this. Christianity is so unique. You know this. In every other religion, when people say religions are the same, they're not. They can't be. In every other religion, it's about making your way to God. In Christianity, it's about God making his way to us. In every other religion, it's about doing the right things to be accepted by that religion. In Christianity, acceptance is found by the accomplished work of Christ. It's found in him. It's found by belief, repentance, and trust. You can't tell me all religions are the same as you compare them. If you do a comparative analysis, they simply are not. Christianity stands out. Maybe it's what makes it wrong, or maybe it's what makes it right. Of course, I believe it's what makes it right. But Christianity is unique in all of the world religions. Secondly, and I've shared some of these stats with you before. These are newer stats. I've shared similar stats in the last number of weeks. But God is saving people from every language, custom, culture, and tribe. You've heard me say it's true. If you look at study any major religion in this world, the greatest populace of that, of that culture, of that religion, is in its place of origin. Where are the most Muslims? In the place of origin. Where are the most Hindus? In the place of origin. Where are the most Sikhs? In the place of origin. Yes, through migration, people move around the world and there's Sikhs and Muslims and Hindus, Buddhists, others around the world. But that's not true with Christianity. Do you know that in 1900, 28% of all believers lived in the global north? That's us. And only 6% lived in the global south. In 2021, last year, 10% of all believers live in the global north and 22% of all believers live in the global south. Listen to these next three stats. These are staggering. In 1970, there were 271 million believers in Latin America. Did you see that? 1970, that's not that long ago. I was born in 71. Some of you now think that's a long time ago. In 2001, there were, there were 617 million believers. In 1970, there were 96 million believers in Asia. In 2021, there were 383 million. In 1970, there were 140 million believers in Africa. 1970! In 2021, there were 685 million believers in Africa. Did you see those stats? What other religion does that? None. Why? Because there's not life in any other religion. There's not hope in any other religion. Life and hope is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ who died, was risen to life again, and is King of kings and Lord of lords now and forevermore. In fact, if you go to South Korea, in 1605, the, uh, 1603, sorry, the gospel came to South Korea, but it was not accepted or received. In 1758, it was banned completely from South Korea. In 1884, missionaries went to Korea to see if God would do a work there in South Korea. And a hundred years later, South Korea was over 30% evangelized. Over 30% of South Korea had given its life to Christ. You find any other religion anywhere that does anything like this, and I'll tell you, you cannot. 
Why with Christianity? Because our God is on the move and he's a saving God. Is that not good news? He's saving people from every language and custom and culture and tribe. He breaks racial reconciliation. He hates it. You know that, right? When I meet Christians who are like racist, I'm like, man, you are not godly. You can't be. God is saving people from every language and custom and culture and tribe. Is that not good news? From all around the world, he is saving people. And so would you pray? Would you just begin to pray that God would open doors? Would you begin to pray that God would allow you to rely on his spirit? Oh God, teach you what it means to hear from your spirit. Teach me what it means to rely on your spirit. Would you ask God to show you the world from his eyes, from his perspective? How does God see the world? You ever wonder that? How does God see the world? Well, his son incarnated himself, wrapped his deity with humanity, lived a sinless life, took our sin upon himself on the cross, allowed the wrath of the Father to be poured out on him, was abandoned on the cross so that we could be welcomed in, became evil on the cross, that's sin, right? So he could grant us his righteousness. Why? Why? There's just six words. For God so loved the world. That's it. That's it. Oh, that we would see the world the way God does.